Well, let's open together to the book of Romans, chapter 6. We are continuing on in our uh, study of this great book, uh, this book that is so, so full and so rich. And, and as many months as it has taken us to get here, we could have gone 10 times this long and still not quite gotten to the depths and the riches that this book has to offer. I've heard of pastors preaching this book for upwards of 20 years, just this book because they wanted to just drain everything that was in it out of it, and I think they probably still didn't get the job done in 20 years. So we are not on the 20-year track whatsoever. We're going to be picking up where we left off last week, so we're starting in verse 15 this week of Romans chapter 6. Hear the word of the Lord. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do rejoice and thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, this, this pure and perfect gift that you have given to us, that through your word we come to know our God. We hear your voice. You speak purely and perfectly, even by your spirit, causing us to, to hear your voice in your word and to understand your word. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would accomplish your good purposes. Lord, illuminate our understanding, cause blinded eyes to see cause dead hearts to live and cold hearts to be warmed. And I pray, God, that as I proclaim your word this morning, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we come now to the last half of chapter 6, Paul is telling us something about ourselves that is absolutely shocking. The statements that he makes here might not shock us because we're used to hearing them before, but it is an amazing statement. Here's what he's saying. Everyone is a slave. You, you can insert your name right there, are a slave. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your nationality or your ethnicity or your heritage or how much money you have in your bank account or how much you feel like you have control over your time and the decisions that you make. You and I and everyone else are slaves right now. It's not that you were slaves. You are a slave. That might sound like a very offensive thing to say. It certainly offends our American sensibilities, but it's absolutely True, and in in this paragraph that we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks, verses 25 through the end of the chapter, verse 23, over and over again we're going to find this word slave. In fact, eight times over the the course of uh, these verses, Paul uses a form of the word slave. So one theologian says the idea that man could be free in the sense that he can be the lord of his own life is nothing but a chimera, a, a monstrous illusion. It's an illusion to think that we can live for ourselves. We will, all of us, be in strict obedience to a master, either the master of, as Paul's going to show us, sin 
on the one hand or slaves of Jesus Christ. But in either case, we're going to live in total submission to the master that we're serving. That's Paul's big point here. Of course, in our culture, the topic of slavery is a bit of a hot-button topic right now. Anything having to do with ethnicity, but springing out of our history of slavery. But one thing we need to understand, this word that Paul's going to use over and over, doulos in, in the Greek, slave, so some translations cowardly uh, translate this word servant because they're afraid to use the word slave, but the word is slave. And that word in that culture got everyone's attention just like it does for us. It was just as weighted in that Roman culture of the first century. Everyone in the Roman church, when they heard that word, their ears perked up as well because all of them had some kind of connection to slavery. Historians say that the population of Rome in the first century was made up of a minimum one-third slaves. Maybe as high as 40% of the people in Rome were slaves in the first century. In fact, the slave population was so great that the suggestion that slaves ought to dress in a way that we can easily identify them was just thrown out entirely because the fear was if we do that, they're going to see how vast their numbers are. Uh, they're going to see that, that they're about half of us and it might lead to some sort of uprising and so they didn't do it. But perhaps as much as one half of the Roman church either had been a slave or was presently a slave. So this is a big deal in that culture. One thing's for sure, when Paul uses this word slave, everyone knows exactly what he's talking about. There's no gray area here for what Paul might mean, and they don't take the concept lightly. And so Paul then, shockingly, says to everyone now, as we come to the second half of Romans chapter 6, you are someone's slave. You will serve and obey the master that owns you, either sin or God. Well, you can imagine that some were offended by that kind of talk. Imagine a person who had formerly been a slave and worked so hard as to buy back their freedom, then to hear Paul say, you are currently a slave, and you can imagine something in them that might rise up and say, no, I'm not. The same kind of offense that happens in our cult culture. I'm not a slave to anybody. I'm a free person. Or maybe even the other angle, I'm certainly not a slave to sin. Don't tell me that. John Calvin, 500 years ago, said the greater the sinner, the more fiercely they're going to argue that they're free. I think he's absolutely right. But Paul's telling Christians they are under a new kind of slavery. They're not under the old slavery that they were born into, this tyrannical rule of sin and death where they stood condemned under the holy law of God. Now they are under the reign of a new master, under the reign of Grace, sin's dominion over them is broken. In that sense, they are free. The condemnation of sin has been removed and they have now come under the rule of a new master, a gracious master, a loving master, a kind master. And so what does it mean then to live under grace? What does that look like? That's the question Paul has been addressing so far in chapter 6. And so now in order to further answer that question, what does it look like to live under the rule of grace? Paul needs to confront some misunderstandings. Paul's opponents are, are mischaracterizing what it is that Paul's teaching when he says that you now live under the reign of grace. And they're, they're saying that Paul is essentially teaching lawlessness. Just do whatever you want because you're under grace. 
It doesn't matter how you live. You're free from the law. Live however you want because you're under grace. And they're, they're saying, Paul is teaching that kind of antinomian against the law kind of false teaching. And so here's what Paul says in verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Now, this question should sound familiar with us. He says almost the exact same thing in verse 1 of chapter 6. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? So now Paul, is, he's approaching that same question from a little bit of a different angle. In verse 1, the question is, can the believer continue to sin since they're saved by grace? Our good works didn't have anything to do with saving us. It was all of grace. And if that's the case, can't we just do whatever we want? Our works never come into the equation. They didn't come in on the front end in our salvation as the cause of our salvation, so they must never factor in ever at any point. And Paul's answer to that question, with authority, is by no means. Now in verse 15, it's a similar question, just coming at a different angle. Since we're not under the law, but under grace, as Paul said in verse 14, doesn't that just mean that sin doesn't matter anymore? I mean, what even is sin if we're not under law? Can't we just live however we want? And Paul answers the question, that similar question, with the exact same expression, by no means. If you remember from our study of verse 1, this is the strongest statement of repudiation in the entire New Testament. Some translations translate it, God forbid. May it never be. This is a strong statement. There's revulsion at the very thought of what's being suggested. So then, if that's not what it means, what does it mean to not be under law but to be under grace? And there are a lot of answers to that question. A lot of people answer that question in a lot of different ways, and most of those answers are wrong. Many people think that since Christians are under grace, there aren't rules anymore. I mean, the Pharisees, they had all these rules, and Jesus came and just threw all the rules out. That's what it means to live under grace. It's like that old Outback Steakhouse commercial. No rules, just right. Remember that? Actually, though, if you ate at Outback Steakhouse, you really hoped they didn't throw the rules out when it came to waiting your turn for your table. Like you'd been there for a half hour on a Saturday night and somebody just rolls in the door and they're like, tell you what, we'll just seat you right now. No, and, and you just look to your wife and you go, no rules, just right. We knew what we signed up for. I guess it's fine. No, you wouldn't have felt that way. You hope that, they, that they're following the rules in the kitchen because you don't want to get food poisoning or even have someone's hair in your food. And so this whole idea that rules are the problem, which is at the, at the root of this statement. Under grace means we have no rules anymore for anything. The, the heart of that is that rules are some sort of a problem. That is a dumb idea. We all know that rules are not the problem here. And it's certainly not what it means to be under grace and not under law. If that, if that were the case, it would mean there could be no law, no rules whatsoever. Now, if you look around at the world right now and you're a little concerned of the direction our nation is headed, imagine what it would be like if there was no rule of law, period. No rules for anyone. Imagine how terrible it would be. We don't really have to imagine. We have the book of Judges. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And what is it? It's mayhem. That's why in Judges, we don't, we don't go to the, the, the stories in Judges to find good examples for ourselves to follow. 
<laughs> Judges is full of one cautionary tale after another because everyone was doing what was right in their own eye with no rule. Well, well others say, it's not that there were no rules, it's just that in the Old Testament, you had to obey the rules, and in the New Testament, you don't have to obey the rules. You just obey them because your heart has changed. You have a different heart. You don't have to obey the rules of God. That's not what Paul's saying either. The commands of God are not optional commands. It's not as though God tells us something in his word and then says, do it or don't do it. It's really not going to make a whole lot of difference to me. God's commands actually tell us how we ought to love God. That's what they're there for. How do I love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength? Well, he's told us how to do that in his commands. And so the, the, the point of Christian freedom is not to make the, the commands of God optional. That's not what Paul's trying to tell us. There's another view that says we only need to follow any instruction of God that's explicitly repeated in the New Testament. So, so the Ten Commandments for us, they don't necessarily represent God's moral will for his people for all time. Instead, it's just whatever we can find explicitly lined out in the New Testament that we should hold to. Well, that's not what Paul is saying here either. So what does Paul mean? If it's not these things over here, if that's not what it means, what does it mean for us to be not under the law but under grace? He's going to make it clear with this illustration now. Verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either, as, uh, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So the, the key words here are these variations on the word obedient or obey. Obedient, obey, obedience, three times in that verse. And then this word that he uses twice, slaves. Slaves obey their masters. That's what it means to be a slave. They are obligated to obey their master. They are not free not to obey their master. And Paul says each one of us is a slave. Every single person obeys a master day after day, either the master of sin or the Lord Jesus Christ. And so obligation is not something that's optional in this world. The, the issue is what do we obey? Who are we obligated to obey? That's the question. It's not a question whether we'll be obligated or not obligated. What or who are we obligated to? And, and in our culture, we need to hear this from Paul. We need to understand this because we cherish freedom. We put it up on this pinnacle like it is the highest good in all the universe, don't we? It's, it's the greatest thing that there is. And when we think freedom, what we mean is total liberation from any outside force telling me anything about myself. I get to do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want, and I should never have to ask anyone's permission. Now, if you go to this church, you've heard a very similar phrase come from me many times. Because that's how we describe God's sovereignty. God is the only one that has that kind of freedom. He does what he wants, when he wants, the way he wants, and he never has to ask anyone's permission. But what Paul's telling us is that kind of view of human freedom is a myth. That kind of freedom doesn't exist for humans. There's no such thing as that kind of freedom for us. Only the sovereign, almighty God has that kind of freedom. But as for you and I, 
we are always obligated to that which we are pursuing. We all present ourselves daily to a master. And we follow his commands. Every day, we submit ourselves to our master. Whether it be sin or whether it be righteousness, we day by day submit ourselves to this master and we follow after what he commands us to do. Paul says, whoever it is you're obeying, you are their slave. What does he say the result of slavery to sin is? There's only one result. There's only one paycheck that comes from that master, and that is death. You see, sin presents itself as freedom. Just do what you want to do, and that, we, that resonates with us as freedom. Do whatever you want to do. Sin is so enticing. Sin is so seductive. And sin is absolutely tyrannical and murderous. Sin is nothing but destructive. And everyone, Paul says, serves one of these two masters. If Jesus Christ is your master, then you're going to live in obedience to him. Of course, that doesn't mean that we're going to live perfectly, that we're going to obey perfectly, that every day we're going to wake up afresh and say, I'm going to live for my master, Jesus Christ, and walk in righteousness, and then perfectly the the whole day, you're never going to stumble, you're never going to sin in word or thought or deed. No, that's not what that means. But the direction of your life is actually going to be one of obedience. The result of your submission to this Lord will be righteousness. So we should be able to examine our lives as Christians, and, 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 and I know that, that you're like me, that you're so aware of your shortcomings and your sins. But we should be able to look at our lives and say the track record of my life since the time that I've been graciously saved by Christ has been that I'm growing in obedience. I'm growing in faithfulness. I'm growing in righteousness. I look more like my Savior now than I did 10 years ago. But if sin is your master, the result is death and condemnation. There's no middle ground between these two things. There's righteousness in life, or there's death and condemnation. Paul says in verse 17, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Paul now is giving us an explicit application of this analogy that he has just given to us, this analogy of of slavery. You are either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. And now Paul Paul gives us this this application to what he has shown us. This, This is the change. What we read in verse 17 is the change that has taken place in the heart of every single believer. This is what it means to be not under law, but instead to be under grace. You who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Paul starts here as he gives this application by saying, but thanks be to God. It is God who deserves the praise for the believer's conversion. God deserves the glory for that. It is God who brought about your transfer from slavery to sin, from from your bondage under this tyrannical and cruel master. It is God who brought you out of that slavery and then united us with this new gracious master. 
Now, if our salvation had occurred, not because it was God acting upon us, but if, it, if our salvation was the result of our own free will, there would be no need for Paul to make this statement. Instead of saying, but thanks be to God, Paul would say, good job, Romans, you did it. You're either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness, but congratulations to you for breaking free from your slavery to sin and choosing the right thing. If we save ourselves, either by our faith or by our works, there's no reason to thank God for this. But if God grants the grace that saves, if it's God who grants you the faith with which you believe and are saved, if it's God who provides the spotless righteousness of his son and then credits and applies that righteousness to the life of the believer and rewards us accordingly, then we had better say thanks be to God. We had better not arrogantly look at ourselves as if we have done something or accomplished something that makes us somehow better than other people. We ought to humbly look to God in overflowing gratitude and rejoice in his kindness to us. He says, thanks be to God, you who were once slaves. This is the state of every person. Slaves to sin. Prior to conversion, every single human being is in that state. We lived in total bondage to sin, unable to free ourselves. And more than that, as we saw in the early chapters of Romans, we had no desire to free ourselves. We were happy in that pit. We were happy in that prison cell. We were happy in our death under sin. That's why God needed to intervene. It's not just that we didn't have the power to save ourselves, which is totally true. We didn't have the desire to save ourselves. God had to intervene on our behalf. It's not just that our hands and feet were enslaved by sin. Our head and our heart were imprisoned as well. Even our will wasn't free. It was in bondage to sin. All of us, every part of us bound up. Paul says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. This is a, the radical change that takes place at conversion. Paul says, you have become obedient from the heart. This verb, have become, it's in the passive voice in, in, in the Greek. And here's what that means. It means you didn't do this yourself. When Paul says, you have become, you who were a slave to sin, have become obedient from the heart. Paul says that in the Greek in such a way that it means you didn't do this. It was God who acted upon you. God who intervened on your behalf. God delivered you from your bondage of sin. God produced in you a new heart. You were born again. And now obedience is what we desire from our new heart. Christians want to please and obey God because of the new hearts that he has placed within us. You have become obedient from the heart. This is all ultimately true of every single genuine Christian. There is an internal desire to live a life that honors God. Do we do it perfectly? No. Do we stumble in sin? Do we rebel? Yes. Do we even go through periods of backsliding where, where we might stack up a few days or weeks in a row where we're not feeling that desire from the heart to live a life of obedience to God. Yes, that happens, but the ultimate story of every Christian's life is this. We desire to live lives that please God. Our hearts are new. They're changed. 
And again, it's not that we've done this to ourselves. It's quite the opposite. The Holy Spirit has taken our heart of stone that loved sin and hated God and has given us a heart of flesh that loves God and hates sin. This is not something we generate on our own. What is it that God makes us obedient from the heart to? Paul says, you've become obedient from the heart to what? To the standard of teaching to which you were committed. This, this word teaching here, it, it means sound doctrine, divine truth. So, so this is Paul's summary word for biblical truth, biblical doctrine. You've become obedient to this teaching. We have been, become obedient to God by means of the word of God. That's what Paul is getting at here with these Roman Christians and with us. And, and this word standard here, to the standard of teaching, it's also translated as form, the form of teaching. That, that's a word used in classical Greek a couple of different ways with the same kind of basic meaning. Uh, it's used of the impression left by a seal when a seal is pressed into the hot wax. It's, it's used of the mark that's left behind from a branding iron. Even the marks left by teeth, bite marks. It's also used for the casting mold that a metal worker would pour the molten metal into to form it into exactly the shape that he wanted. And so the idea here with this word, the, the standard or, or form of teaching is the word of God has left a permanent mark on the life of the believer. The, the word of God is, is the mold. It is the form that the believer has been pulled in, poured into to, to come into perfect conformity with that. It's what Paul's saying when he says, to which you were committed. You've become obedient to the standard or the mold of the sound doctrine from God to which you were committed. So he's not saying that this teaching was committed to them. We might think he would say that. You have become obedient to the standard of teaching which we committed to you. We, the apostles, committed this teaching to you. You were given this teaching, you took it, you held on to it, but he's saying something quite the opposite from that. He's not even saying you made a commitment to this teaching, you decided not to compromise, you decided to stand on this teaching, come what may. No, he's saying something much more incredible than this. This word to, ice in the Greek, is also translated into. So the, the standard of teaching into which you were committed. The word committed, paradidomai, literally means to be handed over, to be delivered over to, to, to be given over to another power as your master. That's the language Paul used of how Christians were, were delivered. So Paul has used the same word in Romans chapter 1 when he is talking about the wickedness and depravity of sin. And he says in Romans 1 verse 24, therefore God gave them over. Paradidomai, same word. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over. Verse 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind. This is a very strong verb that Paul uses here, to be delivered over, to be controlled by some outside power, outside of yourself. And that's the word Paul chooses to use right here to say of what the Christian's relationship to God's word is. So in Romans chapter 1, 
God delivers over rebellious, God-hating sinners to depraved minds and even greater sins. But now in Romans chapter 6, God delivers over those whom he has rescued out of that bondage into greater righteousness and obedience and faithfulness to him. We are delivered over by the Lord to the Lord. What a beautiful statement Paul's making here. What an incredible thing he is saying. Christians are called to, our lives will be marked by obedience. Paul doesn't say here, you believed, you received the gospel. Paul says, you became obedient. You became obedient. Chapter 1, verse 5. Through Christ we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. For the sake of his name among all the nations. So Paul starts the book of Romans with this statement. Paul says, our job as apostles is to produce in you the obedience of faith. When we get to the very end of the book of Romans, chapter 16, verse 26, Paul speaks of the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. And so Paul begins and ends the letter of Romans with this exact same phrase, to bring about the obedience of faith. That's not an accident that Paul did that. What a neat coincidence that Paul started and ended the book with the same phrase. No, that's no accident. It's an inclusio. It means everything sandwiched in between these two things, it's all about this. It's all about bringing about the obedience of faith. He's stressing this is what the whole book is about. The gospel presented in the book of Romans demands obedience. Saving faith always produces obedience. And so those who claim to have received and believed a gospel that doesn't make this demand, those whose lives do not show forth this sure product of saving faith have good reason to be concerned about whether in fact they've received saving faith. Because saving faith always produces obedience. And some people like to separate these two things. They like to separate faith and obedience, but it simply can't be done. You hear these, these expressions, it's, it's often called the carnal Christian, the one who has received Jesus as Savior, but not yet received him as Lord. Friends, it does not work that way. You will read nothing in your Bible that would ever lead you to that place. There's no such thing as a disobedient yet true saving faith. That is not what saving faith is. James Boyce says obedience is the very essence of believing. So the gospel then, it's, it's more than just a free offer or an invitation. The gospel is a free offer. The gospel is an invitation, but it is more than that. It is a divine command. The gospel's command is repent and believe the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no salvation apart from obeying this command. So the very entrance into salvation, into the kingdom of God, is a step of what? Of obedience, without which a person cannot be saved. So we are saved, and our very first step in that salvation is a step of obedience, and we are then saved into a life of joyful obedience. There is no such thing as saving faith that is disobedient. He says then in verse 18, having been set free from sin, we have become slaves of righteousness. 
A more literal rendering of this verse would be, having been set free from sin, you have been enslaved to righteousness. It sounds a little bit more harsh, but that's really what is being said here. You have been enslaved to righteousness. You've been handed over to righteousness, to be enslaved by it. Righteousness is our our new master. We obey God because we are under the authority of righteousness. We are under obligation to it. Now, if that sounds harsh to you, if that sounds domineering in some way, God has handed you over to be enslaved by righteousness such that you are obligated to righteousness, to obedience, and you think, boy, that sounds domineering and harsh, then let me tell you, you don't know who God is. You're so confused by your American modern ideals of what freedom must look like that a statement like that, instead of being a balm for your soul, that God would do this for me, instead becomes some form of offense and bondage? No, this is an immeasurable act of grace and kindness to us. This is an incredible act of God's kindness to us. If God hadn't done this, if he hadn't handed us over to be enslaved by righteousness, obligated to it, friend, you would run as fast as you possibly could in the direction of slavery and death and sin and condemnation. You would run back to that old master. In Homer's famous Odyssey, from the 8th century B.C., the protagonist, Ulysses or Odysseus, depending on what translation, uh, language translation you're reading, he, he knew that many sailors had been lured to their deaths by sirens, by these mythical, beautiful creatures who enticed sailors with their beautiful and irresistible songs when they were on the sea. It led sailors to, to jump over the side of the boat and either drown in the water or be killed by the sirens themselves. It led them to steer their boats in the direction of the song only to be dashed to pieces on the rocks and everyone die. Ulysses was fearful of the allure of these sirens and so he ordered his crew to plug their ears with beeswax but Ulysses himself wanted to hear the siren song for himself. That's how sin works. But he ordered his men to do something to him. He ordered them to tie him securely to the ship's mast. Bind me to the ship's mast, and no matter what I do, no matter what I say, don't let me free. On hearing the siren's song, Ulysses tried with all of his might to break free from his bindings to the mast. He pled with his sailors to set him free. What he wanted to do was go to them. He wanted to to jump over the side of the boat, which was certain death. The only reason he was spared was because he was bound to the mast. Friends, the mast. And and that's what God has done for us. That's what Paul's saying. He's enslaved us to righteousness. He He has bound us to himself and we will never leave. We have been graciously tied to the mast that is Christ. Oh, what an act of kindness this is. What a gracious thing it is to be hidden in Christ. We sing this in the words of that great hymn that we love to sing. This exact thought is is a prayer that we sing. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness be. Like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take it. Seal it for thy courts above. That's that's what we're praying. 
Praying, God, enslave me to righteousness. Lash me to the mast that is Christ, that I, that I would not self-destruct in the way that I would want to because of my flesh. And this is what he's done for every single genuine believer. All believers have been transferred from one slavery to another slavery. Now instead of being rebellious God-haters, we are free to obey God. This is what freedom looks like, true freedom. Sin masquerades as freedom. It's only bondage. It's only slavery. It's only death. True freedom is this, being able to obey God willingly, joyfully, out of the abundance of the new hearts that he has given us. We can obey God because we've been made children of God. We have been given a new nature. We've been made into a new creation. We've been given union with Christ, placed in him, hidden in him, his Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune Godhead dwelling within us, producing the fruit of salvation and righteousness in us. Thank God for our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. He who came into the slave market of this world. That's what that word redeemed means. It's a slave term. It's to purchase a slave, to buy them out of their, their bondage to the master that, that held them. He, he's the one who came into this slave market while we were in chains, while we were bound to this cruel mastery of sin. He redeemed us. He purchased us with his own blood. He brought us out of our bondage in love. He united us even with himself. We were bound we didn't even know enough to know that we needed to be free. And he, he bought us out. We were dead. And he made us alive. But I need to ask you, does, does your life reflect that this has happened? Does your life show that this is your reality, that this has happened? Jesus has done this for his people, for all of them, but... Does your life show that you're among that number? Does your life testify that you are a slave to righteousness? Or instead, would your life reveal that you are a slave to sin? There's no third way here. There's no middle ground between these two things. A slave to sin who somehow still belongs to Christ. No, no, no. You are the slave of the one that you obey. Your life will tell the truth about whose you are. Slave to sin, slave to Christ. Your master is determined by your submission, by your obedience. Are you submitting to Christ and righteousness and his word as Paul has shown us here in this passage? Or are you submitting to the siren call of sin, of the flesh and the death that it brings? to call all of us to the same response. Run to Jesus. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. His promises are true. His power to save is limitless. Come to him. Bow your knee to him. Submit to him. Call out to him. He will have you. He will have you. You've not gone too far. 
Your slavery is not too great. There's freedom here. There's life here. There's joy here. There's peace here. There's grace in abundance. His mercies are new every morning. This is what he holds out to those who trust in him. And he says that all who come, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your gracious salvation. Thank you for your love for us in Christ. The mercy that you have shown us that is beyond measure, that we could never comprehend, what it means to be, to be redeemed out of our slavery, to be brought under the reign of grace, hidden in Christ. Lord, we, our minds can't fully fathom this, but what a grace, what a kindness, what a mercy you have shown to us. And I pray, Lord, for each one of us, I pray for your people that we would live our lives in light of this. Lord, And in light of, of the grace that you have shown us, in light of what it means to live under grace, to live lives of obedience, even increasing obedience to you. And Lord, for those that don't know you, for those perhaps who have, have been like the person I described earlier who thought that they were a Christian though their life showed no marks, of, no marks of true salvation or repentance, I pray, God, that you in your mercy by your spirit would call out to them right now, Lord, that they would look to you, that they would run to you, that they would trust in you, that they would turn from sin, submit, bow their knee before the Lordship of Jesus Christ and that you would save them. Thank you, Lord, that this salvation is none of our own work, it's none of our own doing. It's not the product of, of our schemes and our, our clever words. It's not the product of the force of our own will or goodness. No, instead, it is an act of your grace. And I pray, Lord, that you would save those who don't know you that are hearing my voice this morning. Pray, Lord, that you would make us increasingly faithful to that which you have saved us into. Cause us to be shining lights in this dark world, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.